from the August 1959 issue of the AA Grapevine. Sam, what's the word? Last. Last? Yes. It's the first drink that gets you drunk. It's the last one that gets you sober. I heard heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collective voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. Congratulations, Sam. What's that? Well, I heard that this is your anniversary from when you first came into AA. Okay, so real quick, thank you very much. You deserve congratulations. Uh, So I did reset my sobriety date in 2012 because I used poppers and diet pills in a way that's not sober for me. But in June of 2003 is when I took my last drink. Mm -hmm. It's still a special date to me because alcohol is what kicked my butt. Yeah. This year, I marked 20 years without having a drink. And again, not my sobriety anniversary, not when I pick up a chip, but it is absolutely special to me. And I got to share, a dear friend calls this my was aversary. <laughs> was aversary. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. Sam, do you remember Wake Q in North Carolina who wrote in with an interesting observation? Yeah, he noticed that the first step starts with powerlessness and the traditions end with anonymity. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. And tradition 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. So this idea of surrendering my ego must be very important. I think so. Because also in the concepts, the surrender of the ego is in concept 12. For those who haven't read them, the concepts are about how our society is organized. Yeah. There's a line in 12 that says, quote, that none of the conference members shall ever be placed in a position of unqualified authority over any of the others. So I think that ties in, too, with this whole idea of surrendering the ego that I can't live in the world pushing my personality on people. And when I first came in, the whole, <laughs> although I do push my personality on you a little, so <laughs> I couldn't. I saw your face when I said that. Uh, but when I first came in, the frankly, the idea of powerlessness made no sense whatsoever to me. What it sounded like complete defeat. How am I going to live in the world? completely powerless. And then to discover that that actually gave me the ability to sort out the things that where I can be effective and the places where I can't be effective. Instead of fighting, spinning my wheels in the parking lot on things that I don't have any control over, I surrender those things to my higher power. And then the places I can be effective, then I'm effective. And that ties in with anonymity be in the spiritual foundation of, oh, I've got to surrender my ego as much as I would like it. You or I, Sam, cannot become the leaders of AA. Speak for yourself, Don. <laughs> I know you're working use, on it. Use I statements, Don. <laughs> That's how we share in meetings. <laughs> and then in concept 12, at the level of service, I've heard um, a DCM and a delegate talk about not having an opinion approaching going to meetings 
to hear what people are saying and not bringing my opinion and putting it forward. That's that's like, uh, to me, an impossible level of surrender, you know? So, you know, serving as a delegate to the General Service Conference, you know, it is so incredibly humbling to think about carrying the collective group conscience of all of the meetings in my area. We have a pre-conference assembly. You know, we get to hear from all of these GSRs and they've taken the agenda items to their groups and they've talked about stuff. And we just get to hear, you know, what their groups talked about and how they felt. And by the end of the weekend, that group conscience is very clear to get to be one of just a few people in the 73-year history of the General Service Conference who've had the opportunity to be a delegate. You know, it is it is just amazing to remember how and why you know I got to be there. How does it tie in with the spiritual aspect of surrendering and powerlessness? You know, I think some of the spiritual nature of it humility and anonymity, you know, is that we do this for two years. We go to our first conference, we go to our last conference. You know, I am trying to just let go of everything that I think is necessarily best for Alcoholics Anonymous and try and do, you know, at the conference, you know, what is best for AA as a whole. Going along with the group conscience is really important. You know, there are decisions that get made at my home group that I might not be in favor of. And I go along with them, you know, because I trust that the group conscience might know better than me. And, you know, and that is true for the decisions that we make at the conference. You know, I go along with the decisions that we make. And sometimes I don't even know what the right thing is until it's happened. And then, you know, everything becomes like abundantly clear that this was the best path for us. You know, this makes me think of something. Choose your battles wisely. Now, first, I took that as pick the ones you can win. And then later on, choose battles that are worthy of the battle. Now there's a yet another evolution of that understanding. And that is <laughs> there may not need to be a battle simply because I might not be right. Yes. I always kind of come back to, you know, would you rather be right or happy? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that yeah. was something I heard when I was a newcomer. You know, this last spring, I had all the feelings about, you know, what was going to be the best thing to do at the conference. And, you know, by the time that we closed the conference, I was really good with the decisions that we had made. That's being open and generous to everyone else to allow my mind to be changed. And, you know, that doesn't have to come from an experience in general service. Mm -mm. Now, general service has absolutely colored my experience of sobriety and being out in the world. It can show up at work on a daily basis. I'm on my HOA board. It shows up there. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) absolutely. You know, it carries into my professional career, you know, Mm -hmm. how I interact with people, how I interact with my coworkers, you know, I think through all of our opportunities to be of service in some way in Alcoholics Anonymous, and and I absolutely believe that we find the service that fits. When I first got sober, I was also like a crusty old timer in my home group, and he told the sponsee of his at the back of the room where we're getting coffee, he said, Jim, why don't you try not having a way for a while? 
And I thought, what is he talking about? Not having a way to, but then to find out that this is the thread that runs through all of AA. <laughs> just try it. Oh, I'm just chuckling to myself right <laughs> now. And now I'm going to share it with everyone else because one of the things that I love that you love is I'll allow that, <laughs> which allows you to have your way, even if you're letting go. Yeah, you can let go, still have a way, and not fight. <laughs> Sam, who's our guest today? Well, Don, today's guest is Jen D. from Miguelia, California, who's been on the podcast before answering an Ask It Basket question. We wanted to get to know her story, so we invited her back. And since she's a podcast pro now, we'll dip into the Ask It Basket again. So that's who that was that was talking. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get to know more about Jen in a moment. All right. Sam, isn't it great the way AA just gives us this podcast for free? It doesn't work quite that way, Don. What? While we provide the podcast at no charge, we do have expenses. Grapevine is the only AA entity that does not accept contributions. Nothing from the basket or other money from your home groups. So to support the AA Grapevine podcast, please subscribe to Grapevine Magazine in print or digital. Or provide a subscription to someone in need through our Carry the Message program. Or purchase books or other items at aagrapevine.org slash store. Hi, everybody. My name is Jen, and I am an alcoholic, and I am incredibly grateful to be here with you guys today. This is an absolute privilege to get to be of service to Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, it's a thrill for us. Absolutely. So, Jen, when did you get sober? Uh, my sobriety date is July 18th, 1995. Uh -huh. And what was going on in 1995 inside of you that caused you to show up at AA? In 1994, my second marriage was falling apart. I remember my 25th birthday thinking that my life could look like this for another 50 or 60 years. And I was really okay with not making it to 30, but I had no idea how I was going to, you know, live for, you know, that many years. Mm. Um, it was just absolutely miserable. My second husband had finally said, you know, I am done watching you kill yourself. You got to go. We split up. I moved out, you know, over the next few months without any adult supervision. Yeah. You know, I just made some really, really terrible decisions. And a lot of my stories are like, there was this guy. <laughs> and I met this guy. His life was a little bit of a disaster at the time, but I absolutely fell in love with this guy after knowing him for maybe, maybe 24 hours or something like that. And then he was living with me. Um, and a girl. <laughs> but he had been sober. He was sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, mm -hmm. He hadn't been going to meetings for a while. And after a couple of weeks living with me, he showed up with his big book. I, I don't have a codependent bone in my body. I really don't. I am a selfish, self-centered alcoholic. But, you know, this book showed up in my living room and I thought, you know, maybe I need to know a little bit about this thing that is, you know, important to him. And so I sat down and I read the first 164 pages that day. You know, I got to the doctor's opinion and I was like, oh, crap, they are talking about me. <laughs> mm. 
you know, this book that was written 30 years before I was born, I didn't know how that was even possible. I remember reading the book and thinking that there was something other than just not drinking because I had been doing that. You know, my husband would get upset with me about my drinking. And so I would quit for like a week. Nothing rash, you know, but you know, a week was should be long enough to prove that I really am not an alcoholic. You don't have a problem. <laughs> what I got from the book was that I could do something else that was a lot of hope for me. And so that was the end of May in 1995. And like I said, I didn't get sober till the middle of July. There was a bunch of other wreckage <laughs> that happened in there. But my boyfriend at the time said, hey, I'm going to go to a meeting tonight. Do you want to go with me? You know, I was trying to be on my best behavior. I was really trying to control and enjoy my drinking. Yeah, it was not working out. Now you're living with someone who's sober. Oh, my God. Terrible uh, idea for an alcoholic. a flashlight at you every minute. It's like I would try and get drunk, but not too drunk. And then I would usually, you know, just blow past, you know, anything oh, that yeah. was totally acceptable. But my last drink, and this is like so embarrassing sometimes, was a glass and a half of wine at dinner two days before I went to that meeting. What's embarrassing? Well, like. The half. You know, all of these people have these like amazing, you know, I went out and, you know, and like there were there were explosions and all yes. of this stuff. And I was like, well, I had a glass of half wine. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you can always change that, but I don't advise <laughs> it. <laughs> but that's true for me too. I mean, the, the bottom for me, all that bad drinking and those bad stories happened before that last day. That last day, it was just like a realization inside that. This is not ever going to work. Yeah. And that realization hit me when I drank 40 some days after what I thought was my last drink. Then it was like, wow, I really can't do this. It wasn't your worst drunk. Right. Yeah. Jen, you're, you're one of the few people that I have met who has read the book before coming into the program. Mm -hmm. You know, as you know, that that first time that I read the book, I really had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was going to ask of me when I showed up. Mm -hmm. You know, I am a middle class white girl with a graduate degree. I am pretty clever. And so like I was able to read all the words and I got that you stop drinking and you can do these things and your life can be different. Um, and that was, you know, really important to me. But as far as like the other stuff, like here's how you do these things. That was what I needed a sponsor for. Mm. Yes. So you got a sponsor. I was assigned a sponsor. Oh. I got sober in St. Louis. First meeting was at a place called the Lindell Club, which is this this old house. It was on a Saturday night and it was a candlelight meeting. And if you ever have the opportunity to take somebody to their very first meeting, I would not recommend a candlelight meeting. It's late at night. We walk in and we go upstairs and there's these red candles on the table. And I I had no idea what I'd just gotten myself into. <laughs> <laughs> And like you could smoke at the Lindell Club at the time. And I really wanted a cigarette, but I was like shaking so bad. I was worried that I was going to light myself on fire. Mm. I listened to what they said. And and then they started going around the table. And when they got to, to me, I said, I'm Jen and I'm an alcoholic. And I knew it was true. Have you ever said that before? I had never said that before. I had never even thought that alcohol was the problem until I read that book. I went to my second meeting. I did not do 90 meetings in 90 days. I, you know, I kind of crept into this. My second meeting was eight days later. It was on a Sunday night. 
And I showed up in a room that had the lights on, which was really awesome. (laughs) (laughs) And I wanted what those people had. And I didn't know that that was what I wanted, you know, but, you know, it felt good there. Um, And I went to that meeting for a couple of weeks. And then finally, there were these little old ladies that sat at the table in the back of the room. And between them, they had a bazillion years of sobriety. You know, one of them got sober in 1952, another one in 1969, you know, and the rest of them in the 70s. And so, like, they were amazing and wise. But if you are not serious about getting sober in Alcoholics Anonymous, do not go talk to the little old ladies. (laughs) Because I, you know, it was suggested, you know, go talk to them. So I did. One of them asked me if I had a sponsor. And I didn't know people lied in AA. And so I said, no. (gasps) Uh, (laughs) And she said, well, this is Shannon and she will be your sponsor. So, so far you've made three huge mistakes that have ruined your drinking. (laughs) You you read the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. You went to an AA meeting and kept going. And then you talked to the little old ladies and were honest. Yes, I was, you know, I was not very clever as a newcomer. You know, I, I was like, so worried that if I didn't do the right thing, you guys were going to kick me out. You know, so I started working with this sponsor. So when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was 26 years old. I weighed about 95 pounds. I still wear a lot of black, but what I was wearing then was pretty inappropriate. My hair was a color called hibiscus, and I had a button on my coat that said, guess where I'm pierced. You know, it was just (laughs) this kind of a a train wreck. Yes. Shannon, you know, had a couple of years sober, and she wore flowery sundresses, and she was very cute and very sweet. And she was like, oh, my God, I'm so excited to be your sponsor. And she gave me this great big hug, and I was like, okay, you can let go now. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, and then she told me to call her every day. And she was so serious when she said that, that, you know, I think if she had said anything else in that moment, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, it was that important. And so I started calling her every day and we started working the steps. These are the things that really all the mistakes that you made that you keep putting as mistakes, calling your sponsor every day and are the things that really work. So I'm really glad you jumped on. Was there anything that AA asked you to do that was a giant obstacle to you? I do not believe in God. I am an atheist. And all of these years dealt, I have absolute faith that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous has restored me to sanity. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's that insanity that makes me think I can take a drink and this will be okay. This time it will be different. I showed up here and I didn't know how I was going to make that work. I remember going to meetings and like trying to play along and that didn't, you know, that didn't feel genuine. Mm-hmm. And what I heard in meetings was that you find something that works for you. I remember that I was talking with a really amazing spiritual man. He was a devout Catholic, went to mass every day. And I remember talking to him about, you know, I don't, I don't know how this is going to work for me. And he's like, you know, if you keep your head up at the end of the meeting and look around the room while we're saying the Lord's prayer, all of those people got sober because of Alcoholics Anonymous. And if that isn't a power greater than you, I don't know what is. And I was like, I can do that. That was like this empirical evidence that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous could work, you know, and it wasn't something that was me, but it was this thing that was bigger. And so from there, I was able to just work the steps 
and not worry about, you know, what higher power looked like or anything, I was able to get rid of the wreckage and start to make my amends and start to be of service. Well, how did you negotiate six and seven were entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character and humbly asked him to remove them? For me, you know, step six and seven are these like very physical responses. So I, you know, I remember doing my inventory with my sponsor and there were things that became abundantly clear that, you know, I could no longer do. At the time that I did my fifth step, I was living with someone who was pretty abusive. He was sober. Boyfriend number one was gone by this time. Uh, this is this is a different guy. And there were a couple of other ones in between there. Um, <laughs> I would show up at meetings every week with a different guy. It was terrible. I was living with this guy who was very controlling and abusive. And my problem is I like to fight too. I got in my first bar fight when I was 17. And so we're living together and we're fighting and I'm trying to do the steps I just remember like my first real physical experience was step six and seven. One day I was driving home and about three blocks from my house, I had this blinding flash of the obvious. I had been trying to figure out what acceptance meant for this relationship. That last line of the serenity prayer popped into my head and the courage to change the things I can't. And that was the thing that I had to do. I knew that this was the old behavior and I knew this was something that I couldn't continue to do. And I had to trust if I did the next right thing, I would be okay. And so it's this this feeling of, oh, this is the wrong thing to do. You know, my shoulders go up and the the pit of my stomach, you know, is unsettled. And so I've learned to trust that. And that for me is, you know, how to negotiate step six and seven without that very traditional concept of a higher power. Jen, I too am atheist. One of the things that has proved so important is that no one in Alcoholics Anonymous tells me what I have to believe, what it looks like, that I have to believe it. The best thing that I got was that I'm not God. There are lots of other things in this world that are more powerful than I am. If I say the word God, it doesn't mean what it means to everyone else. It's a placeholder. And I don't have to define these things to people. And I I found now that I don't have to define these things to myself. It's freedom to be able to come and be a part of a fellowship and be an atheist and not be made wrong. What type of experience do you have with that? You know, for a while, I just kind of like played along. I mean, I knew I was an atheist and I knew I didn't believe in God, but, you know, I didn't talk about it in a city like St. Louis, which is very culturally Catholic. And I did not grow up Catholic, but there was like this undercurrent. And I think everywhere, every community has its own, you know, little twist on, you know, how they do AA. Mm -hmm. When I was about 15 years sober, we were working, and when I say we, I mean the conference, the, you know, was working on the pamphlet, Many Paths to Spirituality. And I remember being at a pre-conference assembly working, you know, while that pamphlet was in the works and hearing people saying, you know, you can't be sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. It says in the book that you have to believe in God and, and this, that, and the other. And I heard this very, very narrow definition of what higher power could be. 
I had never really felt attacked as an atheist in Alcoholics Anonymous until that point. What happened for me in that was I started thinking about all of the things that get said in meetings that could make people who do have some kind of traditional faith feel very uncomfortable. People talking about, you know, the church that they grew up in, in a really dismissive way. There is a guy that I know who talk about dead guy on a stick, which is probably one of the most offensive things I have heard in Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. You know, it became really important to me after that, that if I am going to expect Alcoholics Anonymous accepts me as an atheist, that they can accept anybody. And I have known some people with of, of really amazing faith. I have known, you know, rabbis and priests, people of all of these different faiths who get to do Alcoholics Anonymous. And so I don't have as much tolerance (laughs) for those kinds of statements, you know, in meetings anymore. And in the most loving way that I can, you know, I try to I try to carry that message that we all get to be here. Yes. There's no room for us to be bashing no. anyone. No. There, there are many paths to spirituality. Absolutely. That pamphlet, Many Paths to Spirituality, can be found at aa.org. Jen, I really have loved this conversation, but it's time for the Asket Basket. What's that? That's the name Bill W. gave the basket that was passed around for questions. We want your questions for our guests. General recovery questions, newcomer questions, AA history. Got a question for the Ask It Basket? Go to aagreatfun.org and click on podcast. And now let's dip into the basket. We received a question from Cindy in Florida. Hi, guys. I love your podcast. My mother recently started recovery in AA and is just under 90 days sober. How can I, as her adult child, support her in her recovery? Keep up the great work. Thanks, Cindy. Thank it, Sam. <laughs> well, um, I'm so you may find that going to a meeting of the family groups of Al-Anon or an ACOA, an adult children of alcoholics meeting, would be useful to you. Or even just looking at their website can be a great start. And having a little bit of Al-Anon under my belt helps me know what's my stuff and what's their stuff. If you are a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, one of the best things I would recommend is don't go to every meeting with her. Let her have some meetings that are hers. That's right. I know as an alcoholic, any sort of push or effort of encouragement Almost like, oh, I don't want anybody telling me there's something in an alcoholic that just, no, you're not. So the more you can let go, and this is what Al-Anon is about. I went to Al-Anon. You know, I know that I'm powerless over my drinking, and I've learned that in AA, but I did not feel I was powerless over my brother's drinking. And I felt like, you know, there should be something I can do. There was nothing I can do except to allow him to follow his own path. Jen, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I have been told multiple times over the years as a parent is as we get sober and our children grow up and they are on their own path, is that we turn our will, our life and our children 
over to the care of our higher power. Mm. You know, and that's what I was thinking about, you know, with this question is that, you know, you can substitute, you know, anything in there, or, you know, your will, your life and whoever, you know, <laughs> over to the care of their higher power, whatever that looks like. Allowing your mom to have her own path um, in sobriety is going to be so important because I did not get sober from my husband. You know, this guy who absolutely loved me, you know, I could not get sober for my parents who were kind of at their wits end. And, you know, I had to make the decision that I was going to do this myself and that I was willing to do the work myself. Being loving and supportive, you know, is great. But giving your mother the space to find her own path in AA is going to be really important. It's a big deal. And try not to have any expectations of what that path will look like. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. But let go. Well, and that's one of the reasons why it's important to have our own support group. Yeah. You know, our own network of friends, of people in recovery, in my case, because my husband is also in recovery. But I do my best to stay out of his program. That's mm-hmm. his. Yeah. But I need to be able to talk about him. So. <laughs> so that's why you come on the podcast and do exactly. it to all of our listeners. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Don. Jen, this has been wonderful. Again, we're going to have you back on a regular basis. <laughs> <laughs> Jen, thank you so much for joining thank us. You. I have loved it. Thank you. Stay tuned after this episode for a continued conversation with Jen about prayer in the meetings. Sam, can you get that? Yeah, hang on. I'll get it. Hello? Hey, guys. This is Brian from Mebane, North Carolina, again with another really old joke from the Ham on Rye days. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm merely a social sterno drinker. Thanks, Brian. (laughs) I love some ham on rye. Hi, folks. We need your stories on the individual traditions. Pick one and write about your or your group's experience with it. How has a tradition played a part in your life? How has your understanding of a tradition changed? What is a personal experience where a tradition played a part? Visit aagrapevine.org for guidelines and to submit. I'm at the very wit's end. Cuckoo. An historic short snort from November 1958. The doctor put away his stethoscope and shook his head. I don't find anything wrong with you, George. It must be due to drinking. That being the case, I'll come back when you're sober. (laughs) (laughs) It's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. 
Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org. I got a question, Jen. We yeah. had a letter recently where someone said that it was thoughtless for groups to be using the Lord's Prayer at the end of the meeting. And as an atheist, how do you deal with the Lord's Prayer? You said that you got sober in St. Louis and it was Catholic. I'm sure that the Lord's Prayer was very common in meetings. Yes, back then especially, um, almost every group that I went to closed with the Lord's Prayer. What I tried to do, you know, was to follow that guidance to, you know, keep my head up and look around the room and look at all of these people that are sober. And I still do that. You know, I don't like close my eyes and look down or anything like that. You know, at the end of the meeting, I look around at all of these people who are sober today. And that's one of those points where, you know, I trust the group conscience. And that is the group conscience of that particular meeting. They have chosen how they want to close the meeting. You know, over time, those things change. My old home group in St. Louis, you know, used to close with the Lord's Prayer. Now they close with the responsibility statement. I love that for a closing. Yes. And, you know, in my current home group, that was the decision that we made as well, because it was possibly, you know, the broadest, the biggest encompassing close for a meeting. Mm -hmm. There's this is what we need to do when we leave the room is to go yeah. out there and be useful. That's beautiful. I, so I go to a couple of house meetings here in, in Palm Springs, as well as other published meetings. And one of the things that I've noticed in these house meetings is we don't open the meeting with a prayer. And I am used to opening a meeting with the serenity prayer usually. Mm -hmm. What I have noticed is the lack of that feels like I'm missing that moment to get centered, to pay attention to where my feet are. I'm sitting in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous now. I have got a thought on this. I heard someone on uh, the radio talking about uh, observing AA meetings. He ran a treatment center and he was not in AA. He said that when you go to a meeting and observe it, they start with a prayer. At the end of that prayer, time is different. So that it has set apart this hour from everyday life that we're going to be in a, in a different frame of mind and take turns talking. It is the, the value of ritual to set a time to be different than everyday time. Yeah, that was just what I was thinking too, this, this idea of ritual and how when we go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, there are things that we expect. You know, we expect, you know, start the meeting. We're going to say the serenity prayer. There's going to be these readings. And, you know, and I know this sounds like really crazy coming from an atheist, but that's what, you know, when you go to church, you know, you expect that we're going to open the service with, you know, a prayer and some readings. We're going to do these things. And, you know, and there's a pattern to all of that. And I think as human beings, we just, we need that. We need to know what's going to come next. And that just becomes part of the way that we we breathe in that 
surrender and the comfort that we get from, you know, whether it is a church service or a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous or or anything like that, you know, we find peace in ritual. I do go to some online groups where I participate in this book study and it is so casual. You know, we just like, okay, who's going to start reading? And then we get mm-hmm. off on tangents and we Google all kinds of stuff. And it's really kind of funny. Um, and I don't feel like that group, even though we are reading AA literature, you know, I don't feel like that is an AA meeting yeah. in the same way that when I sit down in my home group, um, you know, even when my home group was online, mm-hmm. you know, like it doesn't feel like a meeting in the same way. I get that. Different time. It- Changes time. I think it really is. I really like that observation, Don. I was against ritual and I heard that I was going, oh, you know what? Ritual might be really good. (laughs) As long as it doesn't involve candles everywhere and animal masks. (laughs) And and lighting the red candles. (laughs) Yeah. Those red candles at my first meeting were just really kind of crazy. But I think, you know, as alcoholics, our lives were so chaotic. Mm -hmm we really do find peace in the ritual of knowing what's going to happen over the course of that hour. I talked to a minister at the Unitarian Universalist Church. I was having a terrible time with the Lord's Prayer, and I was talking to him about it. He said that the study said that people who did the Lord's Prayer that their heart rate would change and their their breathing and metabolism would slow. And then they did the study where the people did the cadence of the Lord's Prayer without saying the words, just the cadence of it, Mm -hmm. which means the ritual of it had the same effect. Okay, so the cadence is like me holding a cat on my chest and it purring. (laughs) The cadence is the rhythm. If it was purring in the cadence of the Lord's Prayer, yes. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and well, yeah, I've got a talented cat. <laughs> oh, God. All right. I think we need to stop recording. Yeah, we better. We're going to have way too much. <laughs>